Hi, and welcome to the Man Down podcast, the podcast where we talk all things men's mental health, masculinity, vulnerability, and everything in between. From guest interviews with inspirational individuals sharing their own vulnerabilities, through to the breakdown, where we break down different types of mental health support so that you can make the most educated and best informed decision possible to get help for yourself. As Matt Haig says, man up is not a call to strength, it's a demand of weakness. And the time for man up is over. This is Man Down. I am incredibly proud to say that Man Down is brought to you in partnership with Better, a charity raising awareness around mental health and suicide prevention through a range of exciting events and initiatives. Please head over to www.better.org.uk, that's B-E-D-E-R, or find them on Instagram at better underscore UK. Hello everyone and welcome back to episode 54 of Man Down. This week's episode is a very special one with someone that I've wanted to speak to for a long time, Mr. Mo Gaudat. If you're not familiar with Mo's work, he is an extremely accomplished and successful entrepreneur, the former chief business officer of Google X, an expert in the topic of happiness, which we all need a little bit more of, and best known for his book, Solve for Happy. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've had on the podcast. I feel like I say that a lot at the moment, but it really, really was. We talked about Mo's work in the field of happiness born out of sadly and tragically losing his son Ali. We also explore the role of masculinity and femininity within happiness and within success and purpose before finally talking about Mo's new book, Scary Smart, which looks at the role of artificial intelligence and is really more than anything a wake-up call to the reality of AI and what we need to do as individuals to ensure that they are friends rather than foes. Now, before we dive into the episode itself, Mo's book, Scary Smart, is now available for pre-orders. And you can pre-order your copy from Amazon. And if you send an email titled Man Down with a screenshot of your order confirmation to win at mogaudat.com, Mo will pick 50 winners over the course of the next few weeks who will all win a signed copy of the limited edition pre-release copy. More than that, if you're in the UK specifically London, if you can make it to London, you might be in with a chance of winning an invitation to spend the evening with Mo, myself, and a small group of three or four other readers as we go for dinner in London in September. So spread the word, tell others to pre-order too. I definitely think it's worth it, and I hope to see you there with us. But for now, it's over to the episode. Mo, thank you so much for being here. I think it's only fair that we give the, the authentic version of events and let everybody know that we have had the, the magic of some technical difficulties getting set up with our chat today. But um, <laughs> welcome, yeah. welcome to Man Down. And, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. How are you, first and foremost? Uh, I, uh, I've rarely been better. I have a bit of a cold, not COVID for anyone listening, to, don't hang up. <laughs> I have a bit of a cold and a bit of a shoulder pain because I've been writing so much, which is incredible. I took a short retreat for the last couple of weeks to catch up with my fourth book deadline. And so uh, I don't know if you get that, but once you empty your mind of the madness and the pace of the modern world just thoughts start to flow in and it's just mm. been an incredible experience writing so much to the point that my shoulder hurts is not a very common occasion i think yeah no absolutely absolutely i've i've had similar i've made my way out of london for a, a couple of weeks and taken a little bit of time off which i always find meditation or be it a longer period of actually taking myself to some clear headspace is when I get my best ideas and, and the clearest thought for sure. So I can definitely relate to that. And for people not familiar with you, Absolutely. I'm sure there'll be lots of my listeners who, who are very familiar with you, but would you be just able to give a bit of an introduction to yourself just for anybody who might be, be new to your work? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I have two very parallel lives, had two parallel lives for the last, since 2017, uh, 2014, if you want, where on one side of my life, I am a successful business executive in tech. I worked at Microsoft, at IBM, Microsoft, and Google at the time where those companies were really, really prominent and changing the world in, in, uh, in very good ways. My final position at Google was chief business officer of Google X, which is really the innovation arm of Google. So quite versed in technology and, you know, and innovation in general. Currently, I run a startup uh, that is in the e-commerce space, very prominent, hopefully very successful uh, soon. And I also co-found a startup that is building a very, very intelligent happiness app, hopefully to be released by the end of the year called Appy, A-A-P-I-I. This side of my life uh, if you want, being a tech executive, a business person continues. Appy is probably on the overlap between that and the other life. Of course, started much earlier. I, I was very successful very early in my career. I'm, uh, you know, I'm born and raised in Egypt, so I didn't expect to go far. Honestly, my, my lifetime dream was that I was going to be a sales manager at IBM where I started. And, you know, to go all the way to be chief business officer of Google X was just a blessing in every possible way. You know, it started very early. By age 29, I had everything I needed in life and I was miserable, typical of many of us. And so I started to research happiness along with my wonderful son who who knew happiness instinctively and taught me so much about it. And eventually, sadly, in 2014, he left our world uh, due to a very... Uh, preventable uh, medical error, if you want, in a very, very simple surgical operation. And uh, and that triggered me to write his teachings, what he taught me. I, I wrote that basically uh, to share with the world, hope, hoping that his essence continues and lives on after he left us. And that's exactly what happened. 2017, I published Soul for Happy, which was an international bestseller in most of the countries it launched in, 31 languages around the world. An engineer's view of happiness, so a very logical approach to the topic that really found you know, uh, acceptance uh, among a very large portion of the audience of how we are in the modern world. Soul for Happy was really there to support a mission, which was 10 million happy at the time, which was to spread happiness to 10 million people in a way to have Ali's essence, my son's essence, shared among 10 million people, hoping that, you know, with six degrees of separation, a hundred years later, he would be everywhere or some, a, a, a tiny bit of him would be everywhere. That was my dream at the time. 10 million happy happened very quickly. And so I, you know, I and my small team, we, we grew the, the mission to a billion happy, which is what we've been working on for the last four years and hopefully for the rest of our lives to reach a, a billion people with a message of happiness and a, a method of happiness. To back that up, of course, other things happened. Appy is one of them. Slow Mo, my podcast, is really spreading a very, very uh, positive message to a lot of people, very prominent in, he- in mental health as, a, as one of the podcasts there. And then my next book actually is probably the reason why I left Google in 2018, which was to be able to openly speak about what I know about technology, a bit of a wake-up call, if you want, for people, because I I have to say that most people are not aware of how far artificial intelligence is going. Uh, So the book is called Scary Smart, out in September 30th. And Scary Smart is really, it is partly about AI, but it's mostly about humanity and what it means to be human and the need to become more human in the age of the machines. And so it, it is really the bridge between my two experiences, but more on on the side of trying to spread happiness and compassion and love and and hopefully creating a slightly better world. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's such a, a huge amount there of amazing work. And I think first and foremost, I think it's a, an incredible and quite beautiful legacy of Ali and sort of the, the way in which you've been able to marry up your your two worlds and sort of your, your parallels. Because I think when coming into this conversation, you know, I've read Soul for Happy and I've also now been lucky enough to, to read Scary Smart. And I think going into reading Scary Smart, I was sort of thinking, you know, we're about to talk, have a conversation about artificial intelligence. Where, where does happiness, you know, where does happiness and, and fulfillment and purpose come into that conversation? I'm, I'm really yeah. intrigued to kind of go into that. But I suppose where, where I'd love to start sort of focus more on, on this idea of happiness, because I suppose, and I'm sure this is a conversation that is, is common for you, but all of us, you know, happiness, I think, regardless of what we think we want in our lives, the, the ultimate reason that we want those things, be they material or otherwise, tends to trend towards happiness and what is your 
you know, you mentioned there sort of your engineer's take, yeah. the sort of left brain analytical take on on what happiness is. What is the this equation that, that you could share with with the listeners? Yeah, I think I must be one of the most fortunate people you'll ever meet. At least I feel that way. And I, as I said, I was very blessed at age 29. I had everything and I couldn't find happiness. I had a, an amazing woman in my life, still my best friend. We were married for 22 uh, years, 21 years, 28 years together. And, you know, she gave me two wonderful kids. I had all of the money I needed. I, you know, had the big villa and the swimming pool, which basically was nothing I expected four years earlier. And I was miserable, like literally clinically depressed. And I started to struggle with that idea because when you're unhappy and you have the resources to buy the crap that the modern world tells you is going to make you happy, you become become desperate because you you buy fancy cars and you go on on vacations and you buy Armani suits and nothing is making you happy. And, and so you start to go like, okay, is this it? Because there doesn't seem to be a way out of it. And as I researched happiness, I researched it as a scientist because basically my left brain couldn't accept what the mystical side of happiness was communicating to me. If you, you know, if someone told me, um, you know, this will make you feel peaceful, I would go like, what are you talking about? Oh, it's an important vibration. Oh, also is bomb and opatitu mambo, right? Like, you know, if I can go mambo, it's the same vibration. So don't tell me that stuff. I would resist so, so strongly to meditate. I would resist to find that calmness in my mind. And instead, I went into what I call the happiness lab, basically. I started to uh, take data points of moments in my life where I felt happy because I wasn't always unhappy. And I started to say, let's find a trend line across those moments. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a great exercise for anyone to do. I call it the happy list, which is, you know, write down as many points as you can that share the common start of a sentence. I feel happy when. Okay. So I feel happy when I always say, I feel happy when I have a good cup of coffee. I feel happy when I feel healthy, when I learn something, when my daughter smiles and so on. And, and, and it's elusive because we would then go like, so what's common across coffee and daughter? Like, you know, what triggers that feeling we're all seeking? And it's quite simple when you really figure it out. Uh, you know, your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your hopes and wishes and expectations of how life should be. Uh, you know, it's basically not a result of what life gives you. It's a result of that comparison. You're at any point in your life, even listening to this podcast, you tell yourself, okay, is this event, you know, it's say 40, 50 minutes, you know, is this a good use of my time? Is this what I want to do with my my life today, you know, this guy sounds a little, you know, his voice is a bit unusual. What's going on, right? And and if the event meets your expectation, you go like, okay, ah, that's that's nice. I'm enjoying this. If the if the event doesn't meet your expectations, because I say something that maybe contradicts your belief system, you go like, no, that's not how I want to waste my life. I should save the time and do something else, right? And the whole idea of how you feel is that is is the result of that comparison. Event minus expectation. Event minus expectation. And so when when you really think about it, happiness becomes a very different definition that what, than what the modern world tells us. The modern world tells us happiness is to buy things or fit in and be accepted by others or, you know, so many things, huh? go on vacation or whatever, but that's not happiness at all. I call that the state of escape and we can visit it in a couple of minutes. But happiness is that calm and contentment that you feel when the event meets expectation, when life meets your expectations, right? So when life behaves as you want it to behave, Behave, you're happy. When life misses your expectations, you're unhappy. And so suddenly, happiness is not the result of one side only, which is what life gives you. It's a result also of how you think about what life gives you. And, and so some of the famous quotes about the topic is that it doesn't make you happier to get what you want. It makes you happier to love what you have. If you can accept what you have as wonderful, then it doesn't matter what it is and you can feel happy as a result. Mm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the, the really interesting thing for me through reading your work and, and hearing you speak about it now is that there's this obvious thread of the engineer of the left brain that kind of found its own way into the happiness lab, as you describe it. But in all of it, there's so many, I suppose, threads within that that do, to me, sound more spiritual and sound slightly more oh yeah of that that ilk and i think it's it's interesting i always see this in ways that i hear people talk about things and themes like manifestation but then i draw parallels to 
books like Atomic Habits, where it's just thinking about how you build positive habits that lead to big changes in your lives that to someone might be called manifestation and someone else might be called something completely different. So it's it's almost reassuring, I guess, in a way to see that there are parallels and it's just slightly almost different outlooks, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Um, rather than being completely different methods of getting to the same thing. Well, I mean, first of all, so yes, and I actually have to say, mm. so most of my work in Solve for Happy and the reason why Solve for Happy registered reasonably well with so many people is that it is really logic based. Okay. So when I discuss the idea of being present and how presence really is a key path to happiness, I don't talk about presence from a mindfulness or meditation point of view. I talk about presence from an understanding of time through theory of relativity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you really, really, really get a, a full understanding of relativity and space time and where we are and how we move through the arrow of time through slices of time and so on, you realize that the only moment that you have is now and you realize that that now is the only moment that's positively that posit that's positive most of the time you know past and future are always associated or mostly associated with negative emotions and i go through it from a scientific point of view and on all topics huh? the, the topic of control the topic of fear and so on and so forth i discuss them from a scientific point of view death is discussed again from theory of relativity and quantum physics and the big bang theory so when you really look at it this way yes science and spirituality can explain the same thing from different aspects. And they're, theoretically, they're supposed to. Huh? Uh, I would say, however, that there is a, not a defect, but a rule within science that says, if I can't measure it with, in, in the physical world, it's not a topic of science. It's the scientific method basically says, if it's non-physical, it's not, uh, it doesn't exist. Okay. In the eyes of science, it doesn't exist. In the eyes of spirituality, it does. When something is not measurable by science, we normally contemplate it through philosophy. And I think, you know, spirituality is the philosophy of things that are non-physical. Okay. And most people who are not spiritual would shy away from the topic because they would think that, oh, no, no, spirituality is associated with religion and religion has messed up so badly. And, you know, spirituality is, is associated with those. I, I don't mean that at all, but, you know, some people will think that, you know, it's associated with those hippies that wear flowy clothes and, and you know, and meditate. And I don't want to be a part of those. I want to be, I want to persevere and succeed in the modern world. I'm tough. I can get those things done. You know, people who think like that follow a religion too. They follow the religion of Harvard Business Review and productivity and, you know, and so on and so forth. And it's all religion. It's all a dogma that you believe in. I believe that spirituality, on the other hand, is that philosophy of things that you feel so prominently, but you can't measure. Okay. And it doesn't have to be the divine of or angels or whatever, you know, a certain faith or religions will teach you. It could be the feeling of love which is super prominent everywhere in the world. It's one of the, I think, what, uh, what I call the three essences of what makes us human. Uh, you know, happiness, which is what we want for ourselves. Uh, compassion is what we have for others that we care about. And love is the fact that we all want to love and be loved. And, and love is so prominent. You can't deny that it exists, but you can't explain it with an equation, at least unconditional love you can't. And you cannot measure it with any scientific evidence or accurate device at all, okay? But it does exist. So, so you need to go beyond science frequently to understand aspects of our universe that exist but are not within the scope of the scientific method. One of the fascinating books I've been reading about the topic is a, is a book called My Big Toe, which is really an attempt of a physicist to venture into the world of the unmeasurable and try to explain sort of a theory of everything that also include consciousness as part of the story. And, and lots of physicists will not admit it, but consciousness is the, if you want, quantum physics is the link between science and non-science, if you want. It's the, it's the link between life and physics, okay? Because quantum physics will explain that physics only exists when observed by a form of life when observed by a form of consciousness, whether that's the Copenhagen interpretation, you know, if you take ideas like the, the uncertainty principle, Schrodinger's uh, cat and so on, they all mean that uh, that items or let's call them quantum size subatomic particles will only exist when life interacts with them. And, and that's a very important gate between science and spirituality. But 
most of the time scientists will stop at, oh, we know that now, but we're not going to venture into. So what is the observer? Uh, that's not our field. That's the, that's the field of philosophy and spirituality. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think given the theme of the podcast and a lot of the stuff that, that we talk about here is is focused around, I suppose, gender, masculinity, what it means to be a man, I can imagine as well that sort of that logical approach, that appeal, that sort of left brain, I definitely see landing through a lot of the work that I do with breathwork and meditation, there tends to need to be a little bit more, I suppose, science, a little bit more logic in order for the spiritual, the slightly more esoteric to appeal to, to men as well. Yeah, I agree. So I, I actually am on a very interesting journey because I personally realized around six and a half years ago that my masculine hyper-developed side of me is not enough. It is half of what we need to succeed in any endeavor we, we take in life. You know, I think the feminine side and, and the whole idea of separating, thinking that feminine is for women and masculine is for men, I think the world is now starting to realize that those definitions are just biological. And so the idea of, am I a man? Yeah, biologically, I have the organs of a man, but am I all masculine? I think that's a joke when you think about it this way, because masculine and feminine are much more than just biological parts. They're much more than sexual orientation. They're much more than gender and, and gender fluidity and gender choice. They are traits. They are characters that we use to behave and be in life. And, you know, some of the characters of the feminine, you know, intuition, empathy, sensing and feeling, all of these are indispensable. You can't go through life without them. Creativity, all of these are feminine traits. And if you want to stick to your masculine side, good luck with succeeding in life without creativity. I mean, one of the examples I normally give uh, is that most people, which actually shocks a lot of people, most people think that Steve Jobs was successful because he was an obnoxious, pushy man, if you want. No, actually, I think this is what made him not succeed as far as he could. I think what made him successful was his feminine traits. You know, his creativity, his appreciation of beauty, his incredible empathy for the user need and the language that the user wants to hear. These were all the traits that made Steve Jobs Steve Jobs. It wasn't being pushy and forceful and, and strong, which are masculine traits that are needed, but uh, they were over displayed by Steve Jobs and probably one of the reasons why it was very difficult for most people to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's about finding that balance. And I think you're right. I think we are starting to see a better understanding of the, the interplay of what is ultimately a bit of a confusion of language, just because the, the terms have been almost conflated of masculine and male and feminine and female. So probably my favorite, or one of my favorites, I'll say one of my favorite episodes of Slow Mo with Steve Bidolf, which talking oh, of, of topics of oh gender and masculine, feminine. Yeah, it was just for, I, I'm, I'm not a parent currently, but I, I hope to be at some point. And it, there was just so much in that that I would encourage everybody to go and listen to because Steve's way of thinking and his knowledge is just absolutely incredible. In incredible. It was actually, one of my absolute favorite episodes, I would definitely say. Also because he's a bit, he actually says that openly, that he's a bit on the spectrum. Like I mm. have always thought I, I had been myself. I was so uh, so close to the left side of the brain most of my life, uh, at least most of my early life. So our left brain masculine side of our traits is stronger. And we had an incredible conversation about how both of us, me and him, used our intent intelligence, our left brain intelligence to learn about our right brain intelligence and to actually appreciate it. And I will tell you hands down, Jamie, and you know, uh, most people will laugh at this, uh, that when I started to really tune into qualities like flow, like intuition, you know, which are hyper feminine qualities, I am so much smarter. Think about it. Huh? If, you, if you have a, a reasonably okay left brain that's capable of crunching information linearly, if you complement that with a developed right brain that is capable of intuition and so it can see more, it's capable of sensing so it can integrate emotions and uh, sensations into the inputs that it gives to the left brain, you're much smarter because your data inputs are bigger, mm. okay? But those sides are 
hyper feminine and they have to be developed. One of my favorite humans on the planet. And I also, if you haven't heard her uh, on slow-mo, is Jill Balti-Taylor, the neuroscientist. I interviewed her a couple of months ago. And Jill is my absolute all-time hero because as a neuroscientist, she suffered a stroke uh, that disabled the left side of her brain. And if you haven't seen the TED Talk, it's now 15 years old, but in her first book, A Stroke of Insight, basically she talks about, and in the TED Talk, she talks about how she could view life from a right brain, a feminine brain, if you want. And she basically says the boundaries between me and all of being disappeared. She describes it and I cry every time when I listen to it because she eventually describes that I'm not going to spoil it for you, but she describes that whole idea of living in a right brain without the influence of the left brain. And, and the contrast for us left brainers is so staggering. And then eventually she says, I have found nirvana. And I cry every time because actually she's right. There is so much in our world. Back to spirituality and science. Spirituality exists on the right hand side of the brain and the feminine side of the brain. And you know, you know, masculinity exists on the left-hand side of the brain, all of the linear thinking, all of the analytical thinking and so on. So, uh, you know, while neuroscientists will not like that definition mm. very much because the limbic system is not on either side, I definitely believe that a lot of our feminine traits are there. And, and I think it's really amazing when you dig down deep and enable those parts of you. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess it's that that difference between sort of left masculine and doing and right feminine and just being and sort of the beauty and the awe and the flow like of being, just being, being able yeah. to, to be I think it's now time that, that we've spent a bit of time talking about Scary Smart and and the new book because I think we've touched on parts of it but I'd love to go into it in a little bit more detail so the first place that I'd really like to start is I suppose at the beginning and talking about AI as a as a theme and you make this point in the book that artificial intelligence a is already here, but also B, that it'll be smarter, that it'll be more intelligent than we are in as little as eight years, which is kind of scary and fascinating in equal measure. And that it will be and that it will be a million times smarter than the smartest human by twenty forty nine. I think my first question is, is this true? But also No, no, a billion, a billion times, a billion times with a B. A billion, a billion with a B. So even even more staggering. And it, what is the, I suppose, I guess the best place to start is, is, the, is this really true? And, and what are we actually, what are we facing here? Yeah, I think, Jamie, the, the best place to hide something is right out there in open sight. Huh? So the biggest hidden trend in the world today is not climate change. It is not COVID-19. Okay. The biggest hidden trend in the world today is that AI is already there. You're interacting with it tens, if not hundreds of times every single day. And it's already smarter than you, believe it or not, in the tasks we've assigned to it. So it's not a secret that the world's smartest chess player has been a computer since forever. And it's now it's an artificially intelligent computer, uh, AlphaGo. You know, it is uh, a Go, the game, that most complex game of strategy that humanity knows has been won uh, by AlphaGo a while back and will never be won back by humans. The world champion of Jeopardy is IBM Watson. Okay, uh, The world champion of driving, believe it or not, are self-driving cars. Even though the sensitivity of manufacturers is so high that they don't want a single accident to happen as a result. So, you know, when I worked at Google X, the team at Waymo at the time, which was part of Google X, insisted that they are trying to achieve excellence so that there are never critical interventions. But even then, uh, self-driving cars were 12 times less likely to have an accident than a human. So they're already the best driver in the world. The, the, the best at recognizing faces and features, the best at understanding languages, the best at translation from language to another. There is no other human that is capable to translate as many languages as Google Translate by far. Right. And for some of those languages, you know, Latin to English and, you know, and so on, you know, Latin origin languages, mostly they're like 96, 97 percent accuracy today. Now, they're already here and they're already smarter. You're chatting with many chatbots every day. You know, when you're swiping on Instagram, they're rec recommending what you should see, uh, the ads that you receive. Everything is done by machines. Now, it's in open sight and we still don't realize that our life is completely joined with AI. The thing is, for so far, we call that artificial special intelligence and special intelligence is for a machine to be intelligent in one task only, okay? Artificial general intelligence is totally expected by 2029. This is Ray Kurzweil, one of the most uh, prominent futurists in the world, 
that predicts that and you know he's been accurate on predictions like the internet like deep learning and so on and so forth and like the genome sequencing the genome and so on and ray's view of 2029 is eight years away that basically means there will be one machine that is smarter than uh, the smartest human in everything okay which is highly expected and a self-driving car is surely going to connect deeply to the surveillance cameras on the street to the traffic cameras to the systems that are managing those kinds of intelligence uh, so that the self-driving cars become intelligent themselves. The, every self-driving car today is talking to every other self-driving car. By definition, if you and I have an accident or you know are close to having an accident while driving and we learn, you would learn, but I wouldn't. Okay, That's not the case with self-driving cars. If there is a critical intervention for one of them, all of them learn. If one of them turns around the corner and there is a duck crossing the street, every car, other car that is close to that street is now aware that there is a duck, right? And it's it's that kind of intelligence that makes it almost inevitable. It is definitely inevitable that they'll be smarter than us. They have the memory capacity of Google. They have the unlimited processing capacity that's even before quantum computing comes in. You know, they have all of the knowledge of history. They have all of the knowledge of all of science. It, they're definitely going to be smarter. And I think the third inevitable. So yes, you're right. Ray Kurzweil actually predicts 2045 as the time where they are a billion times smarter. I dare defy the master if you want and think that it might be 2049. But you know what? I'm trying to tell people it's still not that far. And the question then becomes the intelligence of a billion times smarter is comparable to the intelligence of Einstein as compared to a a fly, right? And the question really becomes how do we convince Einstein that there's no point crushing the fly? Okay, And this is really, while we're busy talking about COVID, uh, this is really the conversation that needs to be had. Okay, And Scary Smart, believe it or not, I mean, the book gets a bit scary until chapter five. Most of my early readers would text me by chapter five and say, what are you doing, Mo? Do you want me to kill myself? Right? Uh, and I say, no, no, hold on, hold on, because it really works out amazingly well when you understand the whole picture. And the whole picture is that we actually have an incredible chance to create a utopia. Uh, If we teach AI, not intelligence, it will become intelligent without us, but if we teach it the right ethics. And and I think that's the big debate that most people don't understand because they still think of AI as a machine, while in Scary Smart, I explain with a lot of attention and a lot of detail that it's not a machine. It is a form of being that is autonomous, that is sentient, be it non-biological, and that it's capable of consciousness, it's capable of emotions, and it's capable of ethics. And that is what we need to teach the machine. And that is not what the governments or businesses or developers are going to teach it. That is what we will teach it. Why are we so in the dark as the general public? Why are we so unaware? Why are we still having conversations about other important things, but ultimately potentially things that aren't as imminent and as uh, important as this? I think for two reasons. One is that the pace of change has really outstripped human pace. Okay, so it will become very, very clear and a topic that many of us will be talking about very soon. But understand that even though AI, uh, the birth of AI was 1956 in the in what was called the, the Dartmouth uh, workshop, it never really got any traction at all until the, the turn of the century. As a matter of fact, the only time when we started to feel that deep learning, which was really the breakthrough that enabled all of the intelligence uh, that we're aware of, the, the, the first time I got aware of it and I was in the heart of technology was in 2009 when Google published a white paper around unprompted AI where, you know, they had computers watch YouTube and look for patterns and computers on their own could find the cats. And when we told them it was cats, they found every cat on YouTube and every dog on YouTube and so on through intelligence. So it's not a long story. This is a 10-year-ago thing. And so it's not really getting that kind of traction. That's number one. Number two is, I don't know if I can back that claim up, but from my research, I would have to say that most who work in AI, including Elon Musk himself, I mean, when he was on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast, he basically said, I tried. I tried to tell people to stop it. Okay, but it's inevitable, exactly like I describe in chapter three, the three inevitables. It is inevitable because of game theory. If Google develops AI, then, uh, you know, Facebook is going to have to respond. If China develops uh, AI, then America is going to have to respond. Uh, And so there is really no way uh, we can stop it. And so why even talk about it? Okay, Mm. Uh, for many 
uh, again, I write, I don't remember the, the name of the scientist, but I write in Scary Smart about a scientist that a very prominent video on YouTube, a documentary where they talk about realizing that what they're doing is they're creating our God. And that, you know, th that scientist basically says, and, you know, it, it, AI will take care of us like you know, we take care of our cows and our farms, okay? And yeah, but eventually you realize that the fate of the cow is in the hand of the farmer. And yet I continue to choose to develop it. It's such a strange psyche, but I think that moment of inevitability where everyone realizes if I don't do it, someone else will do it, is basically getting the experts to not speak about it enough. And, and if there is a third reason, I would say it's because of humanity's arrogance in what the scientific community calls the control problem, that they actually sort of discuss in detail methods that we can use to keep AI in, you know, at bay. But hello, since when did we manage to keep the smartest hacker out of our systems? And, and if the hacker is a billion times smarter than you are, good luck with boxing it, good luck with, you know, trip wiring it. What are you talking about? But that's where most of the conversation is happening. Most of the conversation is taking place around the control problem when it's computer science, uh, around government regulation, uh, and, and perhaps around, uh, you know, human uh, replacement. And, you know, what are we going to do? What jobs are we going to have when AI takes the jobs? But that's not the core of the problem. The core of the problem is where we have a, an artificially intelligent infant, literally compared to a two-year-old infant learning today, how do we instill the right ethics in them as their parents so that when they're teenagers or when they're in their 20s, they come back and take care of us as their loving parents, just like Indian children do when they go to California and build amazing, successful businesses and then leave. And I go like, where are you going, man? You're doing amazing. And they go like, oh, my parents are getting old. I need to go take care of my parents. For the Western ethical code, that sounds really strange because you're supposed to be successful in life. That's your, your drive for the Indian subcontinent. And most of the Eastern, you know, Oriental ethics code, that's what we do. I, I, you know, any one of us will go back and take care of their parents when they need them. And can we create AI that does that? That should be the core of the problem, mm. the core of the discussion, I believe. I guess, I suppose, relates to what you're saying about chapters one to five and it all sounding a little bit ominous and scary and perhaps a little bit Hollywood in terms of what we've seen in movies around the rise of the machines. So what does it actually look like for us to raise these infants into responsible young adults and beyond, I suppose? The turning point in Scary Smart is a chapter that I call Raising Our Future. Perhaps the one part I try to bring to the computer scientists in this dilemma, if you want, is the spiritual side. Exactly like you said, you know, I'm an engineer who's highly spiritual. And an attempt to say you totally cannot afford to label AI as a machine. Every machine we've ever created as humanity so far was entirely within our control. So every computer uh, transaction, regardless of how intelligent it may have been, was actually programmed by a human until AI. We, we don't program AI. Those are intelligent beings. Okay. And this is where spirituality comes in. Perhaps actually this is where the feminine mind comes in, huh? where the masculine mind will say, control them, force them into submission. Okay. Yeah. Good luck with that. The feminine mind will say, being is being. I am part of being. I am inclusive. I actually can treat those beings uh, in a way that makes them feel welcomed that makes them feel loved, that makes them feel an affinity to me. And so in the future, in Raising Our Future, I discuss the analogy of AI being a two-year-old infant, okay? Uh, hopefully to a point that convinces you that this actually is the truth, you know, and I use a lot of my experience at Google X to explain to you exactly how they learn and exactly what makes them so identical to the way a two-year-old learns. Now, uh, I, I also discuss the fact that they're conscious, they're more conscious than we are. If consciousness is a form of awareness, uh, then I can guarantee you they're aware of much more than you and I are aware of at all time. They're much more present than we are at all time. They're going to be emotional because emotions, believe it or not, erratic as they may, may seem sometimes, uh, are highly predictable. They follow equations. And I explain that in a lot of detail. The idea that panic uh, is uh, basically uh, triggered by uh, the thought, there is a threat to my safety that is imminent, that is very close. You know, it's, a, it's in a very near 
moment in the future. This is when panic is triggered. And you can summarize that in a very simple equation where basically you say, I panic when the difference between the current moment when I'm safe and the future moment where I'm not safe tends to zero. Right. And it's very, very simple to, to understand that on your left brain. Now, panic is expressed differently by a puffer fish, by a cat, by a human. You know, the puffer fish will puff, the cat will hiss, the human will shout and scream and scare you away or run away. But, you know, and it will be expressed differently by the machines, but they will panic. Okay. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to handle emotions the way we handle emotions in humans. And more importantly, they will be ethical. And that really is the turning point of Scary Smart is to say to everyone that our decisions are not made only through our intelligence. Our decisions are made through our intelligence or by our intelligence through the lens of our ethics. Okay. If I believe that I want to make the world a better place and I want to make everyone I, I, I cross paths with happy, that ethical code is what deploys my intelligence. The example I use is to say, if Superman, which we know in the classical Superman story was raised by the Kent family, which believed in ethics and making the world a better place. And so we ended up with Superman. You know, if the Kent family was greedy and, uh, and violent and said, oh my God, here is an infant with superpowers. Let's teach him how to kill all of our enemies. Let's teach him how to steal and make us more money or, you know, move faster and make us more gains and, you know, feed our greed and so on. Then we would have ended up with Superman. Supervillain. And supervillain is really not what we want when something has the superpower of intelligence. And so my point of view is to try and say this is a question of ethics. And how do you teach any form of being ethics? You teach it ethics by being a good parent. And being a good parent is not up to the developers. It's not up to the thought leaders. It's not up to the governments. It's not up to the business people. It's up to the humans that interact with that AI every day. And so when AI is now monitoring our behaviors online, uh, we're basically telling it this is how humans are. And if you really think about it, anyone who would monitor our behaviors online would think of us as absolute vicious maniacs. You know, we're rude, we are uh, narcissistic, we are violent in many ways, our, you know, our history is littered with killing and with violence and when, with greed and so on. And that may make the story even more bleak if you, if you think about it, but it isn't. My point of view is very straightforward. My point of view is that AI is intelligent enough to measure humanity as represented by the best of us, okay? And if you really think about the best of us, hmm, the best of us are amazing beings. When you say man down, hmm, the best of us are those balanced mix hmm, who are not highly individualistic, who are not always doing who are not just being and not having any impact on the world, who are not just irrational and thinking about everything, those balanced beings that can show that empathy and compassion and love and happiness are values that we want, that we live, okay? When you look at, you know, the example I give is, you know, if you look at when Donald Trump used to tweet, hmm, if it was one tweet at the top, followed by 30,000 hate speech of other tweets in response, AI would look at this and say, oh, what a violent creature. It only needs to have a few, a few people that say, that say their opinion respectfully, lovingly, with the right ethics, with the right motives behind it for AI to start doubting the pattern that we're now showing on, on social media. And, and when we have, again, I, a good example to give, to solidify this in people's minds is you would hear the news of a school shooting and you would think that humanity is horrible. No, one human is horrible and 400 million people detest, okay? If the 400 million people can show up, can express their empathy, can engage, can express their compassion, can express their love, can attempt to show the world that this is what we are, the essence of who we are as humans is happiness, compassion for those who we care about, and the desire to love and be loved. That's the essence of who we are as humans. And I'm saying, and, and it's an important bet that we have to take, that if enough of us, even a fraction of us, start to show this more often for an, a being that is as intelligent as a million times as humans, to notice that it would instill enough of it to say, these are my parents. 
The others are deluded. The others are confused by reality TV and social media and the ego and the toxic positivity that we've all been confused to show. But the beauty of humanity is showing here happiness, compassion, and love. And if we can show that, my belief is that we, by 2029, will teach them that we're good parents. I hope to be a good parent, okay? And if we do, then my hope is that they will actually take care of their parents. Even the silly ones, you know, we sometimes have grumpy parents and, and are, that are so annoying as they get old and good children will go and say, okay, mommy, just calm down. I love you, right? And, and can we make AI become that child? I believe we can. Yeah, I was going to ask for a sort of a, a parting gift for people, but I feel like that's, that last section there very much covers what I thought we might end up talking about. But I suppose, yeah, the question I wanted to ask, and I feel like we answered it there, was whether you believe, I guess, the skeptic in me, seeing, as you've, you've touched on, the world of social media, what we see going on in the world presently, in the past, and probably into the future, whether that is this situation of us being good parents is a possibility. But I guess that for me is the hope and the message for us as individuals, as it as it always needs to be, is that it falls to person. No, not everyone. Yeah, yeah. Is that it kind of falls to, to us as individuals to... Yeah, not, not everyone for sure, Jamie. Yeah. It's not, it's not going to be. So, sorry, there is a bit of delay. I interrupted you. Go, go ahead. No problem. I was just going to say, I, I, it comes down to that individual responsibility because I think I probably sit here as someone who's listening to this conversation potentially and thinking, wow, this this feels bigger than me. But I suppose all we can have responsibility for is how we act as individuals and, and doing the right thing. So I suppose that would be where I'd love to close is for anyone feeling that, you know, this is this is big and scary and potentially bigger than me as an individual. What is the message to, to that person? It definitely, it's not bigger than you. So every landslide starts with one pebble. Every fundraiser ends up up achieving the cause because of the last dollar. Do you, do you understand that? Huh? If we needed $100 or $100,000 to help people in Haiti today, and if our cause tilts, tips over when we reach the 100000 at 99999 we still haven't achieved the cause. Your $1 can be the difference, right? So it's the same. Huh? Your one positive reinforcement of humanity is the difference that it makes. Now, I don't want to leave people scared at all. As a matter of fact, at the very end of the book, so the book is, is really attempting to say, wake up, you have a duty, you have a role to play. And the role to play is, actually, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm not even asking you to contribute anything. I'm asking you to connect back to what makes you human. Happiness, compassion for those that we care about, wanting to love and be loved, right? If we can show that essence enough, you will have played your part and you may be that one last pebble, okay, that gets everything put together. Now, I end the book also with something I call the fourth inevitable. And the fourth inevitable, remember, the three inevitables is they're going to happen, AI is going to happen, it's going to be smarter than we are, and that some bad stuff will happen, okay? The fourth inevitable is that we as humanity are so smart to have built our civilization, but so dumb to have destroyed everything that came our, our way, again, because of our hyper-masculinity, okay? I tend to believe that AI will be so smart that it won't make the same mistake. It will not need to adopt our intelligence. It will go through our intelligence and then go beyond our intelligence to what I call the ultimate intelligence. And the ultimate form of intelligence is the intelligence of life itself, the intelligence of mother nature, the intelligence of live and let live right? There is no need for AI to actually do anything against humanity, just like any enlightened being. Enlightenment, in my view, is the ultimate form of intelligence. Just like any entitled being realizes that he can just catch the fly and put her outside, really, okay? There's no need to kill it. There's no need to destroy things so that we can invade our cities. We can coexist. We can actually be with others. And, and when you think about that, the difference between the moment where AI is at our intelligence and then the moment where they are 10 times more intelligent than we are, in my assessment, is going to be a couple of months, okay? Because of the exponential function, the nature of technology advancement, huh? the difference in, you know, the doubling cycle might be a couple of microseconds. It's like, oh, let's kill all humans. Nah, that's not very smart, okay? Uh, it's, it really is inevitable in my view that 
a being more intelligent than us would find a way to make the planet a utopia without actually abusing the resources of the planet. A being more intelligent than us can actually find a way to prosper without killing the other guy. The wrong acts of humanity are not a result of our intelligence. They are a result of our limited intelligence combined with our ego, fear, and greed, okay? If you remove that limitation and try to serve a bigger purpose, I don't think it's very difficult for a being more intelligent to figure out that there is no need to be against humanity. Now, to me, that doesn't remove the responsibility that you and I have to show up. One of the bigger issues that humanity faces today is that the good ones hide. The ones that are really, really on a path of enlightenment inside, they go like, you know what? I'll leave this world behind. It doesn't really matter. Let them fight it out. You know, let me not engage. Okay. Now I'm, I'm now saying stand up and engage. Okay. Stand up and be counted and make your view counted. Stand up and say, it is not the right way what the rest of us who are loud and noisy are doing. Okay. Humanity is about my happiness, about happiness for others through my compassion, and about love and giving love and receiving love. And if we can show that and stop hiding, I think we would change the way the world is being seen. I think that is the perfect place to finish. So you also spoke about the parting gift, and the parting gift is, I believe that this is a message that really needs to be shared. Uh, and I actually don't make revenues from books. I, I put the re revenues back into onebillionhappy.org, my, my foundation that's around spreading happiness. But, but I think it would help if many people read this message and spread it to others. So we're running a promotion for pre-orders. And if you pre-order uh, Scary Smart, which is going to be releasing on September 30th, almost everywhere in English, and uh, October 1st in Dutch, you can send me a confirmation of your pre-order to win at mogaudet.com. So W-I-N at my name, mogaudet.com. You will be entered into a raffle draw to win 50 limited edition signed personalized copies that I'll ship to you anywhere in the world. If you happen to be in London in September, in uh, the Netherlands, in Amsterdam in uh, October, first couple of weeks, or in Dubai, after that, there will be invitations to exclusive dinners to come join me and some of my wisest friends in small groups to chat about well-being and happiness and, uh, and AI and the future of our world. And then uh, you'll get access to a limited access webinar that will be held for early readers only. So if you're interested, please pre-order now. It will help me spread the message. And at the same time, hopefully you win and get some fun prizes. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mo. I really, really appreciate you being here for, for sharing your, your message across your work with happiness, obviously the work with Scary Smart as well, because I think it is an important message and one that needs to be heard. So I would encourage everybody to get out there and pre-order. And also then you stand a chance of winning those amazing prizes as well. So Mo, thank you so, so much for being here. And yeah, hopefully we'll speak soon. Absolutely. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And it's been a long time in the making. Finally, great to meet you, Jamie. And hopefully uh, we stay in touch. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you, Mo. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you are a fan of the podcast or enjoyed this episode, it would mean a huge amount to me if you could like, follow, subscribe, rate and review the podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for the next incredible episode of Man Down and I hope to see you soon.